Welcome to Acton Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Social capital, the capacity of people to cooperate toward common aims, is an indispensable element of a free and prosperous society. Yet many studies demonstrate that it has been steadily eroded in recent decades. Social pathologies, such as the breakdown of the family, addiction, and deaths of despair, are strongly correlated with weakening social ties and norms. The decline in social capital has had devastating real-world consequences. In this episode, Acton's Dan Huger talks with Marianne and Barry Keating, authors of the new book, Rebuilding Social Capital, about the idea of social capital, its erosion, how economics and Catholic social teaching help to clarify the concept, and what their new research suggests is the path forward to rebuilding social capital in our society. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Marianne and Barry Keating. Marianne Keating is a research fellow at the Indiana Policy Review Foundation. Barry Keating is Emeritus Professor of Managerial Economics and Forecasting Analytics at the University of Notre Dame. They are together co-authors of the latest monograph in the Acton Institute's Christian Social Thought Series, Rebuilding Social Capital. Rebuilding Social Capital is a brief but incisive examination of the concept of social capital, its decline in the United States, and the ways in which the insights of economics and Catholic social thought can be employed to rebuild it. Social capital is the capacity of people to cooperate toward common aims, and its operation and erosion has been the subject of inquiry from intellectuals from a wide variety of disciplines. Marianne and Barry draw upon much of this existing work from scholars such as Robert Putnam, Francis Fukuyama, and Charles Murray to document the decline of social capital, but also offer their own insights into the task of restoring it, an urgent task for all concerned with human flourishing. Marianne and Barry, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Dan, for inviting us. Uh, We appreciate the opportunity to talk about rebuilding social capital. Now, realize we're both economists. We're not trained in law or philosophy. So we're going to unabashedly appropriate economic terms such as capital and externalities. And we use statistics to try to understand what's been called the great disruption in American society. Excellent. Yeah, that leads into to sort of the first uh, track I wanted to take with this, which is to ask sort of, A, what is social capital? And then how does that perspective and language of economics help us to better appreciate uh, the social phenomena? Well, social capital are the capabilities acquired by persons in groups pursuing shared objectives. It's acquired through direct participation in intermediate organizations between family and the state. 
unlike mailing lists or advocacy movements, an augmenting social capital intermediary has a specific mission, rules of order, explicit membership rights and responsibilities, and a budgetary constraint. So we see social capital as a stock that can either be augmented or diminished. It's embedded in persons, and it is, I guess, a subset of human capital that includes health, education, marketable skills, etc. In economics, there's an ongoing discussion about whether or not technology is embodied in people or if it's embodied in the equipment. And similarly, we feel that social capital is embodied in persons, but organizations are very important in transmitting and growing social capital. Yeah, that language of stock is usually in economics refers to that to that physical capital, that equipment, that machinery. So I think that's a that's a wonderful distinction to make. Now, what is what is the place and role of social capital in in Catholic social thought? Well, uh, I could answer that. Catholic social thought presents a very clear vision for civic society. If you look at the encyclical of John the Twenty Third or Paul II, or even the Second Vatican Council's documents, the vision of civil society is very well defined. It's non-ideological, and it doesn't offer any specific agenda. Is that, is that similarly something that the church holds to be in, in human persons themselves? And how, do, how does the role of institutions play in this description of of social capital and Catholic social teaching? Good question. Uh, Catholic social teaching, as you know, is based on an explicit anthropological conception of the social nature of human beings. And this is fulfilled to some extent in the political realm, but also in various intermediary groups, starting with the family. And each of these particular organizations or types of organizations have, if you will, their own autonomy or sphere sovereignty. So in defending human freedom to freely associate, the church is defending her own freedom and indeed democratic governance. Excellent. So there, there, there's a role to play in all realms of society. And the, and the church, of course, articulates her own rights and responsibilities, but also offers some guidance to these other institutions um, in, uh, in how to realize full human potential. Now, many eminent sociologists, as well as public intellectuals generally, have documented the erosion of social capital. What are some of the general trends that they've identified, and, and what, just exactly why are they so troubling? Well, American social scientists and philosophers, such as Francis Fukuyama, Charles Murray, and Robert Putnam, refer to a great disruption, more or less following the 60s, resulting in a decline in social well-being and excessive political partnership. They describe the great disruption in terms of deaths of despair, alienation, substance abuse, suicide, as well as intergenerational poverty. These are generalizations, of course. And all three scholars indicate that certain regions and the affluent can certainly protect themselves from some of these adverse conditions. But as social scientists, all we can do is point out patterns indicating a loss of overall well-being. We argue that the great disruption represents a loss in social capital. So 
these are these are trends that while they're they're universal in scope, there are certain populations or pockets that are more insulated. What what are the sort of things that protect certain people or certain places from these disruptions, at least or at least mitigate their effects? Well, I think that uh, certainly it, it's a matter of associations and whether or not people have a large number of associations or the possibility of, of entering into these associations. Now, a lot of correction can be done through private financing and getting tutoring and psychological services and this kind of thing. But there are pockets of people who formerly in the past through fraternal organizations were able to develop these networks in order to build social capital within themselves and make them able to cope. And we find a decline in these kinds of associations and networks. So when we've got, when we've got these, these increasing problems of, of addiction, of isolation, of, of, of suicide, of, of despair in its, in its grossest manifestation, what, what's necessary to re- reverse these troubling trends? And what does your research suggest in terms of, of how we are to regrow social capital? Well, Dan, let me explain how we uh, documented the declines in social capital yeah, and then get onto your question about what does it suggest in terms of regrowing social capital. You know, given the abundance of data that's available, it might seem obvious to assess declining social capital by looking at increased or decreased rates in things like homicides, assaults, rapes, burglaries, suicides, addiction. The problem is that social deviance ignores distribution and therefore any overall net change in social capital. A high incidence of social capital widely distributed across the United States probably coexists with pockets of extreme social pathology, like those things that I listed. We felt that a more accurate indicator of changes in the overall stock of social capital may be better represented by how people voluntarily choose to allocate their time. So that begs the question, how do people choose to allocate their time? And the first thing we did was to take a look at the American Time Use Survey, ATUS, A-T-U-S. It's produced by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The American Time Use Survey measures the amount of time people all across the country spend doing various activities, such as paid work or childcare, volunteering, socializing. Now, the respondents receive an advance letter and a pamphlet explaining the purpose of ATIS and notifying them of the day they'll be called. And the ATIS interview is based on a 24-hour time diary. Now, ATIS lends support to Putnam's work through the mid-1990s on declining social capital. Uh, We define that as potential benefits created when people exercise their ability to voluntarily work together to achieve common objectives. From about 2003 through 2017, Americans, both men and women, in general, reduce their participation in voluntary and civic activities. For most activities, the trend line over the period was negative and statistically significant. What's particularly interesting is the positive and significant trend in all religious and spiritual activities. But note 
however, that it's associated with a negative trend in the actual time spent in attending formal religious services. Let me say that again. So there's a positive and significant trend in all religious and spiritual activities, but there's a negative trend in attending formal religious services. So of particular interest is the statistically significant negative trend for both men and women in attending formal religious services. The personal value of participation in organized activities, including attendance at religious services, at this point continues to decline. So what we did is we decided to concentrate on youth. We appear to be a youth-oriented society. So is it the case that social capital accumulation in the United States is focused primarily on the youth? And the data that we used is the Stanford Inter-University Consortium for political and social research. And in 2011 through 13, they conducted a longitudinal civic participation study of California high school seniors. And the participating schools attended by these respondents were selected based on ethnic and socioeconomic and immigrant diversity. And these schools represent three different regions. Seniors as part of the study are invited to during a required class period to participate in the survey. And of the students surveyed, about 84% were born in the United States and about 52% were female. Now, survey students were asked to select three, if any issues about which they are most concerned. It shouldn't come as any surprise, Dan, that, <laughs> that high school seniors rank personal issues. Number one was, am I gonna get a job? Number two was, am I going to get into the right college? And number three was, how's the economy going to do? Mm -hmm. And those were of greater concern to these, these young people than things like, that were also in the list, like rural poverty and war and environmental considerations. Now, that alone is an interesting observation, but it, it's simply an observation. It's not the results of the analysis. The civic purpose project data is valuable, more importantly, first in understanding youthful attitudes on participation, and secondly, in predicting students that are most likely to participate in organized athletic, ethnic, academic, volunteer, religious activities. Those activities that we associate with social capital. So to identify the characteristics of students fully engaged and disengaged in private non-political activities, we employed a, a classification uh, algorithm. And classification algorithms are increasingly being used. They're not without criticism, but they're used to predict consumer susceptibility to advertising and to predict which prisoners are gonna become repeat criminals to determine life expectancy. But in our study, the classification technique is limited to personal characteristics of the Stanford study respondents. What we're trying to determine is if these characteristics can be used to identify which respondents are most likely to be either engaged or disengaged in organized activities, that is to participate in religious programs and to volunteer. Now, unlike regression analysis, a classification algorithm doesn't a priori decide which variables uh, available to us are likely to be the most significant. The algorithm instead allows the data to build the model for selecting respondents most likely to participate in a particular activity 
if a pattern of participation is present in the data. So in no way does it identify important attributes contributing to accurate classification as causal, but it does show which ones are associated. But I think you can see, Dan, that obviously some inferences can be drawn here. So the object of the classification algorithm is to rank the respondents as either engaged or not engaged in a particular activity. Now to do this, the data sets divided into two groups. One group is referred to as a training data set. The other is the testing data set. We're always testing to see if the patterns actually exist. Now the standard measures of effectiveness for this technique is the percentage accuracy with which it can determine or which it can predict, for example, which respondents in the non-testing group can be determined to be engaged. And the algorithm we used identified about 75% overall accuracy. In other words, 75% accuracy of those who would be engaged. Uh, That's a lot better than a naive model. But there were two additional pieces of information from our classification results that are important for Uh, social capital. The first is that the algorithm ranks all the respondents from those most likely to be engaged to least likely, and it does so apparently fairly well. Uh, The classification algorithm ranked the data correctly for approximately 60% of those in the first 40% of the scored data. But the second piece of information, of valuable information for us, is the identification given the survey data of those attributes that contributed the most in ranking the respondents. In other words, what actually was personally important that made a difference in the prediction? And on the second point, what did we find? Well, we found that engaged high school students tend to be idealistic. They tend to be self-interested. They have community support and they identify as being both smart and athletic. Now, less obvious, however, is that those who identify as being spiritual, that is associating and associating with an ethnic group, or who have family members who volunteer, are also most likely to be engaged. The important point is that faith and ethnic-based groups are attributes that are significant contributors to predicting which respondents choose to be engaged. By the way, the disengaged Let's take a look at those for a second. The disengaged, those who have never participated, that's 9% of all the respondents in the the data. But the high degree of accuracy that we got in predicting them, now that's about 98%. uh, What are the attributes of the students who are disengaged? Well, the disengaged do not identify as being athletic, and the engaged do. The disengaged neither feel supported by adults outside the family, nor are they active in ethnic type associations, whereas the engaged report being supported by non-family adults, and they tend to be active in ethnic associations. Also, the disengaged consider themselves more likely to have experienced discrimination and and to be rebellious. Uh, In a separate portion of the study, we used another uh, algorithm to target respondents who regularly and those who regularly or occasionally participate in religious organizations. Now, these two groups are defined respectively as regular religious participation or regular or some religious participation. And for this algorithm, two important considerations are relevant for sponsoring religious activities for use. First, students who identify as being religious and who express the goal of devoting attention to their spiritual lives and character are more likely 
to regularly participate in religious activities. Now, that, of course, is obvious. But it's too easy to dismiss the fact that the desire to participate in religion originates in the person, not with the organizers. Every marketing undergraduate studying Maslow's hierarchy of needs learns that firms don't create needs, but they respond to them. The second result for regular or some religious participation supports our personal experience that being invited or encouraged, being invited or encouraged, is an important predictor for participation in any activity. You know, it's somewhat surprising what we didn't find. We did not find gender to be important. And we did not find whether the, the young people were born in the U.S. or not born in the U.S. as important predictors of whether they were going to be engaged or disengaged. That is, that is really fascinating. Now, one, one of the interesting things when I was – and there, these are presented in, in some great tables in the book, um, a lot of this data. Um, and it's, it's fascinating to go through. And one of the things that I was curious about when going over it was we see an increase in sort of religious or spiritual attitudes among, among the adult population. At the same time, we see participation in religious services trending in the opposite direction. And those two things are related um, in the youth. What, what sort of explanation might there be for – folks um, devoting attention and thought and in their in their sort of private lives, private religious expressions, but not coming into a religious community. Well, I think our take on that is uh, is this. We found that there was a I was kind of surprised, but we found that there was a difference in people who refer to themselves as religious and people who refer to themselves as religious and who engage in uh, formal activity in an organized religion. They go to mass, for instance. Yep. They go to services. Uh, there is a difference between the two. And I think the important thing to note there is that organizations, that is the formal organization, the church, and, uh, and the sacraments that the church provides in person, well, not so much in person with COVID these days, but in person, those are important. Organizations are important for embedding social capital in, in youths. It's not just, it's not the same to say that you're religious and try to be a good person as to actually engage formally with other people and with the organization of the church, which has been around for a couple thousand years, formally. There's a difference between the two. Yeah. How does that difference manifest itself in some of these social pathologies we've outlined and also in sort of these community outliers? Well, you know, I think that we always talk about the public square as being empty of religion, but it is the case that the public square more and more is empty of these intermediate organizations that are so essential for building social capital and also for participatory democracy. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. That's really fascinating um, how these things are related. What sort of practical steps could people take in their own lives or in their own communities to start beginning to rebuild um, this eroding social capital? 
Well, um, I think maybe just providing more opportunities for people to practice social skills in intermediate institutions. Uh, the ability to work towards common objectives is a skill that's acquired through practice. Uh, McIntyre, the philosopher who wrote uh, the books on virtue, talked about the fact that it's important to practice virtue. Well, I think it's important to practice in order to be able to accumulate social capital. And unfortunately, so many unnecessary regulations and compliance costs have, and tort has uh, limited the opportunities for people to practice these social skills. Yeah. Now, Barry had mentioned um, the importance of invitations to religious services. So in addition to, to sort of finding an institutional place where you can work on these skills yourself, it seems that it's also important to try to bring others as well. What, what, are, your, what are your thoughts on, on that role of individual practice and then orienting yourself towards others in terms of, in terms of invitations and bringing other people into concrete community? Well, remember, Dan, uh, we indicated that uh, formal participation uh, was important. I think Marianne brought up that uh, it's, it's the way you practice. You know, you will become uh, what you practice. One of the uh, variables that shows up in the Stanford study is whether people were, in fact, invited at a, when they were youths. And it turns out, remember, the, the technique we're using uh, only picks up those attributes that tend to be important or, or tend to aid in predicting whether people are going to be engaged or not engaged uh, at a later point in time. And one of the things that drops right out of, of the data as being very clearly able to act as a predictor is whether you were invited. That, that in, a, in a sense, partially determines whether you're going to be engaged or not engaged at a later point in time. Uh, so clearly for youth leaders, <laughs> that gives you an idea of what you might want to be doing if you want to increase social capital. You have to actually invite people, and probably more than once, and they have to accept that invitation. It's important that the leaders are not just trying to create another advocacy group, whereby they're trying to, let's say, create different policies or change laws. Uh, the kind of associations that we're talking about are where people are, you know, not dependent in any case, but active participation in the thing. I think it's also interesting to note that Putnam uh, found out that uh, you can't expect people throughout the course of their life to suddenly become more involved with these kinds of organizations. He studied it throughout the whole 20th century and found out that later co cohorts do not get engaged as they get older. So what happens in high school is extremely important in terms of to the extent to which they will be participants throughout their life. So it's very important to, to not only invite people, but particularly young people, um, and to get them sort of on the ground floor of practicing those habits, becoming involved, embedded in the community. One of the things, um, when you mentioned Robert Putnam, a lot of his work was done prior to the explosion of the internet, social media. And when you mentioned um, 
that involved embedded practice. There's a way in which the internet um, can facilitate that in terms of organization, but but can't really replicate that. What do you both see as, as the internet in social media something that could be a, a, a catalyst or is it a potential obstacle to rebuilding social capital? Well, Dan, we looked for some evidence supporting early participation with lifelong uh, social capital. And we go through a couple studies at the end of the book. And we take a look at a, a couple organizations, some organizations that have been around for a while, but the studies we're looking at are post-Putnam. They're uh, actually uh, fairly new. Now, there are only uh, a few studies linking the effects of organizational participation on social capital, but, uh, but we can present two. In fact, we've presented two of them in the book. Uh, we have information on the former participants and, and, and their objectives. Now, the first study that we took a look at in the book involved members of 4-H. 4-H is a public-private partnership that engages youths and clubs all across the United States. And the study examined the contribution of 4-H to the personal development of 4-H members. So what characteristics did you have as a 4-H member and did they in fact lead to social capital years later after you were a member? So they're taking a look at 4-H members on average who are eight and a half years out. And these are people who had, had engaged in 4-H for a number of years. And what they found out is that the authors of the study concluded that 4-H experiences greatly contributed to respondents developing group interaction and leadership and decision-making skills. In other words, they were practicing. They were practicing these uh, social skills and building up uh, social capital. Now, notice you had to be a member of the formal group and you had to participate on average, at least in terms of their study, about eight and a half years to get these, what I'll call, benefits at a later point in time. Now, the second study uh, also involved an organization everybody is familiar with. The second study examined men and boys across America, and we're talking about scouting. So this Harris Interactive uh, study produced a report called Values of Americans, a Study of Ethics and Character. And what they were examining is the ethics and the character of Americans, both young and old, to compare changes in norms over time and to try and assess uh, one organization's long-term influence on behavior, that is scouting. Now, the study deals with men and boys and permits comparisons in values between 1995 and 2005. Now, what did they find? Well, the study found that fewer men responding to the 2005 survey placed high importance on showing concern for their neighbor's property or keeping their property clean and tidy or attending religious services regularly. Measures of ethical beliefs also declined over the time period of their study. Uh, fewer men agreed that being honest with everyone pays off and that preserving our environment for future generations is important. American values related to ethical behaviors varied according to the perceived degree of the offense. But respondents to the later survey continued to indicate strong opposition to things like the illicit use of hard drugs, like heroin, but held lenient views on taking office supplies for personal use or speeding on the road. Now, the study enables a comparison of the perceptions of adult men in general and former Boy Scouts in particular, remember, Boy Scouts is a formal, organized club. 
concerning their behaviors. So men with scouting backgrounds were less likely than those with no scouting background to place greater importance on measures of good citizenship. And that was especially true of men who were scouts for five years or more. In other words, the length of time you were engaged in this formal activity made a difference. Men who were scouts believed that voting in every election, showing concern for your neighbor's property, keeping one's property clean and tidy, staying physically fit, were essential to good citizenship. Men with scouting backgrounds also gave greater importance to attending church or religious services regularly, financially supporting religious organizations, participating in youth-related organizations, or taking part in charitable organizations, or volunteering their time in the community. Now, that certainly begs the question of whether youth participation in formal intermediaries, like scouting or 4-H, have a long-lasting effect on their on behavior in later life. I think the two studies have a clear inference that the two are related causally. So it would seem that both 4-H and scouting studies indicate that formal intermediaries, in other words, organizations are important. Organizations could justify their roles as stemming the tide of decreased social capital. Both organizations characterized by an internal hierarchy and a division of labor and functional distinctions contribute to social capital. But that does raise a troubling question. It raises the question of why Americans seem to have lost faith in formal organizations and have continued to reduce their participation. We talked about ways in which people themselves could maybe make some changes to get more involved or to invite others. What are some things that you think that that institutions could do to perhaps stem this tide of disengagement? Well, um, that's interesting, Dan. Uh, I do want to mention that social capital in itself is not necessarily positive. Yeah. In other words, gang members and organized crime have a large stock of, so- of social capital, and they are very effective in achieving their objectives. Um, I think it's interesting that a lot of times Catholic social thought is ignored because it's based on natural law and also on the common good. And that's sort of understandable that people are resistant to that because they hear people who will tell them exactly what natural rights should be and also what is in the common good. As economists, we deal with this through talking about positive externalities. And so we're emphasizing the positive externalities associated with social capital. But indeed, there are negative externalities. Yeah. Just as there are, as there are pathological persons, there, there are pathological institutions. Exactly. But what, what are some things that, that you think maybe institutions might be able to do, um, institutions that are, that are committed to the common good, could do to um, make, uh, make participation more appealing to, to folks who would otherwise be disengaged? Well, other than providing more opportunities, I think we do have a problem in terms of much of social service now is monopolistically provided by the government. And what happens in these situations is that you create dependency because you either have to accept the level of service and the quality of service that's provided, 
or join an advocacy organization to uh, work towards unlimited services paid by somebody else. And I think that private nonprofits can customize delivery of their services, be very explicit about the quality and the limitations of what it is that they're offering, and they can incorporate members and help them achieve realistic decisions in terms of uh, social capital. I think it's needed for a democratic political system. Absolutely, and and that is that is key. That part of this disengagement might be a, a byproduct of a crowding out that's happening. Exactly. <laughs> to use another economic term, Dan. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Well, Barry and Marianne, this has been illuminating. The book is wonderful. And all of those uh, studies and this rich data set um, that much of this book is based on is uh, is beautifully presented in tables in a very accessible way for the reader uh, in this book. Thank you both so much for being here with me. And uh, thank you so much for all the great work you're doing investigating these, these very timely issues. Well, thank you, Dan, for inviting us and giving us the opportunity to talk about social capital. And thank you, Dan, and hope that there's eternal vigilance in trying to maintain the liberty of these intermediate organizations. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week. And it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Combs.